You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole, and I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, my computer told me this was the right mate for me in this very small white room, Christy Morris. Hello. Uh, just call me La. Okay. La, it's great La. to see you, La. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's going to make me sad. I'm not happy with Which this arrangement. You're the one with the bald head. So, you know. That's they true. all have bald That's heads. True. Actually, La has fuzz. She so, has, like, fashion is fuzz. a very good thing. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. So, that's true. That's true. I would be out of line at this point. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, uh, it's going to be fun. Um, this week, we're going to visit THX1138. Uh, and uh, which should be a lot of fun to talk through George Lucas's first movie. In fact, we're going to do uh, a small duology over the next couple of weeks uh, as we talk about George Lucas's first two movies. Uh, and so this is this is going to be fun, uh, I think, for for everyone. But uh, before we dive into THX one one three eight, which I don't know why you're not at your post, uh, but. Make sure you find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts can be had. Um, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, though, give us a star rating review. Let people know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Trek.FM, where you can also find every show that we're doing here on the network, as well as... The contact section. And that's also a place where you can send Christy and I an email if you would like. And so, uh, John, you know, uh, one of the things that you and I were kind of talking off screen about uh, the other day, we were just messaging each other about THX 1138 and how it's a movie that, you know, unless you're really into George Lucas, you might even not even know exists. And so, yes. you know, I, yeah. because of that, I was, you know, as we were talking about that, I was thinking John would kind of be the perfect person to have on to talk about this movie. But, you know, there's a really interesting history that goes along with this movie being made because this was legitimately one of Lucas's first films ever in the sense of this comes all the way back because this started off as one of his student films at USC. Yeah, it's it started off. Uh, it was a THX eleven thirty eight four EB electronic labyrinth or something like that, which you know you can understand shortening mm -hmm. it for the poster when it when it goes official. But yeah, it, it's uh, he he does basically a rough draft of this in film school, and then he you know he he I think he did some um, some work on Coppola's The Rain People, and so, you know because he and Coppola were friends, they knew each other from from school and everything like that. And so Coppola is trying to establish his own, uh, his own studio, if you will, uh, his own production company, I should say, uh, American Zotro. 
And so Lucas gets tapped to make a film for American Zotrope. And they go into a partnership with Warner Brothers. And so they decide they're going, you know, they're they're coming out of this 1960s school of thought with film. You know, they've studied all of these great masters like Kurosawa and Godard and all of these great guys. And so this is this is that that crazy class coming out of USC that is actually going to shape for the three of us and for millions of other people, what we consider to be good film for the rest of our lives. And so THX 1138 becomes the first film out of the gate. And, uh, it, you know, he expands and he expounds. You get Robert Duvall, who, since this is released the year before the Godfather, Robert Duvall is a known actor by this point, but he's not quite the, you know, the, the sensation that he becomes for the public by that point. Uh, Donald Pleasance, Blofeld himself, mm-hmm. uh, is a character in the movie. He uh, winds up working with uh, the soon-to-be legendary Walter Murch for editing and sound montage. His wife, Marsha, is on it. So it's a very low-budget production. It's experimental. And it's just – it is the that sort of quintessential film school dystopian sci-fi writ large. And, um, I mean, I, I can say that – Combing my memory, my first exposure to it was actually in the original The Making of Star Wars, narrated by William Conrad, which was a TV special. That was one of the first videotapes ever released. And they actually mentioned THX 1138 in that. And the line about it was science fiction of a very different sort. And they, the shot that they had was the kids on the escalator mm. and the, uh, a shot of the robot cop. And like that was it. And that's pretty much, even though, you know, we all spent our lives as George Lucas and Star Wars fans, that was my only exposure to it till I got to college. Like, this is, this is the definition of an obscure first film. And so I think that's pretty much, in a nutshell, uh, you know, look at the history yeah, I think the other thing that really struck me about this movie and um, in its history is that it immediately starts George Lucas's hate relationship with studios because uh, American mm-hmm. Zotro partners with Warner Brothers where they're going to do uh, a, a feature film venture with them. And I think they have like seven feature films or something that they're planning on doing with them in, in conjunction together. And they cut four minutes out of the film prior to its release, which George Lucas doesn't want done. And it just immediately sets Lucas on the path to... Mm-hmm. hating studios because this is going to be a continuation that's going to happen next week when we talk about American graffiti. And it's the thing that he is adamant about when deciding, you know, with star Wars and beyond that nobody will ever tell him what to do again with his movies. Like that mm-hmm. nobody will have creative yeah. control. And I, I think it's fascinating because, you know, John, as we're talking about this and Christy, as we're talking about this, we also live in the world where, you know, the Snyder Cut's going to be coming out soon, uh, next year. Uh, and it's like, mm-hmm. this is still a thing that happens to directors all the time, that their vision is not able to be seen completely, that somebody's meddling with it somewhere. And, you know, I just feel bad for these guys where these type of things happen. And you can understand exactly why this sets Lucas on the path that he would become with his own company that controls everything. And it's his own money. So, you know, he literally just becomes the biggest, uh, you know, 
independent filmmaker of all time, really. Well, and, and there's also, I think it's very important to note that he does it through Coppola's company, American Zotrope. And Coppola goes bankrupt not long after uh, the, you know, THX. And he, he goes bankrupt after these massive successes like The Godfather, Godfather 2. He's written, he's won an Oscar for writing Patton. He's, um, you know, he goes on to do Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now and everything. And you can see sort of Lucas taking notes about how not to do things. And I say that with all due respect to Mr. Coppola because he has done, he has created some of the greatest works of film in human history. But in terms of running a business, he's had his, he's had his problems, right? And it, I can't run a business either, but like, it's one of those things where it's, I think you can see exactly Lucas's mind as well in studying mistakes that people make and saying, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. I know what I'm going to do to make sure that my company doesn't fail. And, you know, and, and he goes on when he does Star Wars and he reinvests, he basically becomes a nonprofit because he takes his, his money, he reinvests it to create his empire. And then he uses empire's money to go ahead and create Skywalker Ranch. And he uses, you know, all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Right. That like, Instead of a person who the fame and the money went to his head, he was able to remember that keen business sense and, like you said, reinvest it. Um, Yeah. Right. Right. And and, and although that, you know, I mean, I know this takes us down a different path, but you can sort of see his own musings on that in the prequel trilogy, uh, you know, about somebody who's trapped by their own uh, legacy, as it were, Mm -hmm. and their own tendencies. Uh, to want to control everything, so which but, this but, whole yeah, movie you know, is about, THX is a, <laughs> which is the idea of control, <laughs> right? Right, but but you think about it, THX is this movie that's done by a kid who grew up during the hippie times in school, musing about you know government control and societal overreach and consumerism and all of it. Like you see everything from the '60s is reflected, start to finish. All of the concerns about where society was going are right there. And, that, you know, even a lot of the stuff in this, you're going to see come back in Star Wars, you know, in its own way. And it, it's interesting how it feels like this um, is a constant back and forth where it, that whole does life imitate art or art imitate life? Because obviously we'll have right. those issues again <laughs> in the time since the 60s. Yeah. So I, I think that this movie is definitely continuously relevant as far as the topic goes. Um, it's just definitely in that style too, though, of what I think of as Coppola movies like apocalypse now. I, okay. How do you, and I'm uh-huh. not challenging you. I'm just curious because I've never heard, you know, sort of like that, that sort of comparison. How do you see that? Like, I'm legitimately curious. Where, where do you see the, the parallels? Basically there? in more like the general tone. It, it's not something that I could just mm-hmm. sit down for casual viewing. I need to like prepare myself that this is going to be a really dramatic movie. Fair. Absolutely. Absolutely fair. And what, what I find interesting about it too, because you, because you do, you know, uh, you, you bring up Apocalypse Now, uh, this is not factual or anything like that, but sort of like Lucas starts out working a lot with Walter Murch. Um, but then Mertz goes off to work on Apocalypse Now, which is a project that was Lucas's. And so I think calling out the tone is very interesting because Mertz did the editing on Apocalypse Now. So it would make sense in a lot of ways that that, that, that tone would reverberate. I've never heard anybody make that specific comparison, though. And I think that's really interesting because I think 
it's completely valid because See, of that. And I like that too, Christy, yeah. because um, just yeah. having seen Apocalypse Now for the first time for myself not too long ago, oh. and I saw the final cut, and there are definitely a lot of scenes throughout that movie that actually do kind of harken back to the style and the structure of the way in which Lucas has, has structured THX. Um, so I can actually, I mean, I, I think that's a great poll that they, they do have s- such similarities with, and it makes sense too. Cause you know, like you were saying, John Lucas was actually a part of creating apocalypse now before he decides to do star Wars instead. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it you know, you can see where his kind of, uh, I guess more artistic bent in that sense was like he was really playing with those things in in in, in Apocalypse Now as well. Um, and he goes, and I hate to say like artistic and commercial, but you know he just goes in a much more like traditional route with what he does with Star Wars because mm-hmm. he's basing it off something specifically. Whereas you know these are Apocalypse Now and THX, they're really experimental films, which. You know, George has always talked about wanting to continue to make maybe later on in his life. Um, and, his, you know, he's like, I might just do it in my garage and nobody will see him, you know, like <laughs> but that, that. But that's where he got his start, you know, and, and that was such a part of the milieu yeah. of the 60s culture and film really experimenting with what things are going to be. So um, both of you, I thought was really interesting, you know, kind of mentioning these different things. But I, I was wondering what your path and what your history then with this movie was. Is this something that you had seen before now or was this, you know, your first time to watch this film? So this was actually my first viewing ever was watching it to prepare for the show tonight. So thank you for making me watch it. And <laughs> which... uh you watch, did you watch the 2004 uh, version? The one with the, the added effects and the George Lucas director's cut? As I don't it's called. think so. You watched the mm-hmm. original 71 version? Oh, wow. Where did, where, where did you That's watch it, That's interesting. Um, it's, it's a secret. It's a secret? <laughs> <laughs> I found yeah. it. Uh, oh, but, no, because uh, Amazon Prime actually has both versions. For free? You can watch the... Yeah, okay. No, not for free. You can watch the original version and you can watch the uh, – or you can choose the director's cut. And what's very interesting – I mean, the director's cut sort of straddles that line because it's a special edition as well. He he enhances some of the stuff. And I can definitely say that the, um, the, the, the director's cut, special edition, whatever you want to call it, um, is definitely more accessible uh, than the original version. The, the original version is so bare bones – uh, the first time I saw this was discovering it in a, like a, a, a VHS rental <laughs> store, like a mom and pop type of place, you know, back in, in college. And I'm there with my friend Joey, who figures a lot in my past stories. And uh, we're like, oh, yeah, George Lucas's first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's watch this. Let's watch this. Fell mm-hmm. asleep. Knocked out cold within the first 20 minutes. I was like, <laughs> done. I was like, whatever, man. I don't care. Flash forward. It's, you know, I, I don't know, six months, a year later. And I say, I, I really want to give it another try. Maybe I was just tired that night. And by the end of it, we were both, how long is this movie? It's, it's an hour and a half. This feels like it's been three hours. Like we just did not plug into it at all. And then years go by and I say, you know what? I'm going to give this another shot. I mean, it's it's my boy, George Lucas. I feel like I, I owe it to him to give him as many chances as possible. 
and a little little crack in the wall happens, and I'm like, okay, all right, this this is kind of working, but you can definitely tell it's a really low budget sort of thing, and you know, it's a, it's it's a cute first effort sort, you know, that gets them on the path. But the the 2004 edition with the enhanced effects and there are a couple of editing changes and stuff like that, I think is infinitely more accessible and and a better okay. film. Um, because there, there's just a better flow to it. Like, um, in, in the 71 version, they, they happen out into the hallway and it's sound montage alone that is supposed to give you this idea that they're in this, you know, crazy labyrinth and world that they, they, they're, oh my gosh, I've just gotten out of the, the big white room and I, ah, what's going on and where's Sen? And you can so totally tell that it's just, you know, a kid fresh out of college with about 20 people crowding mm-hmm. a hallway in a parking garage sort of thing. Well, he expands that. So it, it visually you get more of a sense of the world that he's in. Okay. Um, and even with the, the factory accidents and stuff like that. So I would encourage you to watch the 2004 version. No guarantee that you'll love it, but um, that's sort of the, my fallback version at this point. I consider that like, I'm like, okay, I think it's much closer to what he had. Uh, in yeah. His then I definitely eye. saw the 71 version. Yeah. That was tough. That <laughs> you one's feel tough. my pain. Very tough. I do. I completely I mean, get I, it. I mean, I just saw the, you know, the 71 version back in the day. I was probably in college by the time that I watched it, you know, wanting to go back and see George Lucas movies because I'm a fan. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those movies where it's like, I, I kind of liked it a little bit. I kind of knew what he was going for and everything. But I, I'm with you, John. I do think... um that seeing it again for this and, and watching the director's cut, uh, you know, I, I think there is there's something to be said again for directors being able to fulfill their visions in the sense of really having having the ability to put that on screen in a way that they couldn't back then. You know, like there's just a there's no way he could have done that. And I think it like you said, it definitely makes um a, a better version of of the movie and uh, I, I think it it brings that world to life which is so important to really kind of get a sense of how crazy and claustrophobic and strange and weird this whole like you uh, John you you put it as a labyrinth and I think that's a perfect way to describe it as that you know that that Greek labyrinth under underneath the ground and it and it makes the end so much stronger than I think as well when you see that, you know, because you've spent all this time and it's, it, it's felt like you're in this whole world and then you realize, Oh, there's a whole world above where we've been this whole time too. And Mm so, yeah. And, and Lucas said one of his uh, great regrets was that he feels he, with, with THX, it was a world he always wanted to go back to, but it has a definite ending. He escapes, he gets out there, but then there's still that question of, what was up there? What happens to THX after that? And you can say, well, it's good enough to leave it alone. But he has said in interviews that it was something that always sort of pained him that he couldn't go back and, and and do it, which I think informs him going back and doing the director's cut and everything like that. But you can see that urge that he has continue through his career. And, you know, so that's why when it gets to Star Wars, he finally gets the opportunity to go back and say, no, you know what? I can change it. I can do that. Mm-hmm. That's allowed. Nobody nobody can tell me what to do. And so he goes back and he starts fiddling with it. And of course, you know, people have their different reactions to it, but it pursues him through his whole career to try to perfect things. Like he's just a tinkerer 
Well, and it's, I mean, I, I having seen both and, and just being able to say, I just think it's legitimately a much better movie, the director's cut. You know, yeah. it's a movie that I think by giving us a larger view of of what was in his mind as he's creating this world, it brings it to life in a way that makes the, the movie feel more real and more visceral and it and 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 this Mm -hmm. is a place where i think it's like where technology has the ability to truly transform a movie in the best way possible so that you you feel the emotion and weight of what a director is is going for you know uh and so Mm -hmm. like it's it's one of those things like you know uh when you when you see a director's full vision finally come to life it's better you know like i I won't. I don't watch the theatrical cuts of any of the Lord of the Rings movies anymore. <laughs> Just watch the extended cuts, you know. Like I don't watch the um, theatrical cut of BVS anymore. I just watch the the ultimate edition, you know. Like there are many movies to which it's like a a director's full vision has become the only version that I even pay attention to anymore. And this is another one of those places where that'll only be the case. And, and part of that is I think. No, go ahead, John. You, I, I can see your. Oh no, I was just going to say that anytime director's cut uh, discussions come up, I always uh, jump in and point out that the, any cut of Highlander Two is absolute garbage, and always go with the shortest version <laughs> you watch. You've told because, me because, uh, although I didn't really like Highlander, yeah, trust me. So, you know, okay, that's nuts. But like <laughs> Highlander Two is especially somebody who loved Highlander. It was like you walked. I remember seeing that in the theater, but. All that to say, there was all of this excitement with Highlander 2 because they said, oh, there's the Renegade cut. It's the director's vision. And boy, did I jump on that train and I bought that thing sight unseen. And I said, yes, this is going to be the – oh, no, it's just 15 minutes longer and it's worse. (laughs) This is awful. So director's cuts are not the panacea necessarily. But I'd say you got about an 80 or 90% success rate on them. So y'all are trying to convince me to now go watch the director's cut of this movie, and I'm not sure you're going to be successful. We, yeah, I mean, regardless, I do think, uh, I would say if you were ever going to watch the movie again, that would be the version that I would watch. So, Like when you decide you're going to sit down and watch the holiday special. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, and I've done that. Um, that would, <laughs> let me put, just put it this way. The holiday special was way more painful than this. Hands down. Like, yeah. Oh, I mean, the holiday yeah. Special, no, I mean, you know, when something is so bad that instead of trying to fix it, Lucas just buries it it's for true. all time. <laughs> it's true. You know, no amount of special editioning go. can ever help the holiday special. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, it's the only director's cut. That's uh zero <laughs> <Exactly>. minutes long. <laughs> It's so. just been erased. <laughs> Wait, there's something yeah. on this tape. <laughs> exactly. So this world really, I think, is a dystopia in every sense of the term, you know. And John, you were you mentioned earlier about how this kind of brings all of the things to bear that the '60s were really scared of, you know. But I, I, I watching the movie again, I, I just found how relevant it still is in many ways and how in many ways it's almost prophetical some of the things that we see um and it i i was thinking of this as this is the uh film version of every breath you take from the police you know like this this really is that Uh, but i mean you know 
we're talking about a, a, a complete state control of everything being com- uh, calculated by computer. Um, I mean, you have all human emotion and feeling just completely squelched. Uh, sexual activity is completely prohibited between people, but porn school. Um, and there's just like no <laughs> greater good than to work hard and increase production. It's it's like you. It is basically absolute socialism and conformity are the state religion, and it is actually the state religion. Right. Uh, you know, I I, I always go back to, you know, the, the fact that the, the Da Vinci painting uh, of Christ and, you know, in their little confessional booths, and it's just that recording and it always ends with buy, buy more, buy and be happy, you know, that consumerist sort of thing. But there's also, I think, an incredible symbolism in the fact was THX's job is he is one of the workers building the tool of their own oppression. Mm-hmm. If the workers stopped building those robot cops, then there wouldn't be, you know, there would be less of a problem sort of thing. But I think even more than that, there's there's also this um, suppressed humanity that Lucas is getting at that is, even though Sen, it, you know, played by Donald Pleasance, is the bad guy in essence, there's that really human sad moment when he gets lost and he winds up encountering the kids and, you know, that he's helping the kid reattach his little intravenous learning tubes. And he's relating to them like people and saying, oh, when I, when I was a kid, it, oh, yeah, applied economic theory was a, a tube this big. And, and then the cops show up and he just sadly gets dragged off. And um, what makes them give up the pursuit for THX is it's – it is literally it's they've exceeded budget Mm -hmm. and so it's not worth it to them to get him because he's just a number okay well all right well we'll just reassign the number and there's you're just another brick in the wall yeah right but but there's there's a a real a real sadness to it in that thx didn't ask for this knowledge to be thrust on him it's all because La fell in love with him and wanted him to join her. And he says he didn't want this. He was, he was fine the way that it was. But once he knows about what life is like, when you don't conform, when you don't toe the line, when you have your own individual thoughts, he, he can't go back. It's, it's an impossibility for him because he knows what life is like. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if the Wachowskis saw this film at all, but I I would be hard pressed to um, say that this didn't in some way have an influence on the matrix because there's some stunning similarities just in terms of the structure and the themes. It's just that the matrix has a more exciting application of them. Uh, but of course, you know, that all goes back to, you know, people reading Orwell and, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I, completely understood what they were getting at in general with this movie of that, you know, what if we became completely controlled by our government and we're just a number and this completely um, void of any personality world where everyone is wearing the same thing, has the same hairstyle and you can't even have relationships I mean, it doesn't even seem like friendship is allowed. It's 
so very vanilla. And yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it also makes you think, what is living then if you have no goal for yourself or hope or aspirations? Like they don't have any reason to have aspirations because nothing is ever going to change. Well, and, and there's, you know, there's, um, you know, there, there's a personal achievement aspect. You're, you're right. You know, but, but there's, there's this idea that this exploration, I guess, that does continue through all of Lucas's works about what does it mean mm-hmm. to be human, even as he starts exploring with the droids in Star Wars. And you even see sort of a template with the hologram where he runs across a hologram as he's escaping. And the question becomes, well, does the hologram count as mm-hmm. a person? Or or is it just a simulation? And, you know, THX is the one who treats the hologram as a person. So, okay, yeah, sure. And there, there there's absolutely no mistaking the fact that the hologram, you know, is, is played by an African-American actor. And so you definitely have that race layer on top of that of, you know, that the one main African-American character we run across isn't even considered a person. So you know there's there's i think some some interesting uh you know theme exploration in that as well yeah i'm glad that you mentioned that too about someone being considered not even a person because i think too that was the the big thing that i took away was i remember from sociology class in college learning that without human interaction with other beings that there were children that actually became almost animalistic it was like they they forgot how mm-hmm. to communicate other than growling and they didn't know how to do simple tasks or to build relationships anymore because they were just so isolated for so long and that that humans yep. need other humans you can't be completely isolated forever because you will literally go mad right yeah or or you know and and the questions of reality going back to you know like plato's the cave if all I ever see are shadows on the wall, you throw me into the real world, it's going to blow my mind. It's not going to make any sense to me. I'm going to think that's the the, mm-hmm. the fake thing. I'll go back to my cave. Thanks. And that and that's, you know, THX's whole journey is escaping the cave and realizing what reality truly is. And so it's it's one of those things where what I like about it is even if you don't like this film, you can tell at the very least – that Lucas, from the get-go, had these very deep philosophical things. He wasn't making, um, you know, a fly-by-night uh, adventure movie. He wasn't making a, uh, you know, um, just a, a, a gritty sort of exploration of the streets of New York or anything like that. He was truly thinking about these bigger themes, and I think it's it's one of those things where I think when you when you see THX, it provides a lot of shading because one of the things that drove me I, I always tell the story about um, I was taking a film analysis class and the director handed out these things about Joseph Campbell and the heroic monomyth and I, I'm all excited and I'm, I'm in college I'm wearing my Star Wars cap and I'm like oh heroic monomyth yeah oh Professor Miller yeah uh, you know we're going to talk about Star Wars maybe and he goes no it's a kids movie. And I'm like, if you look at THX, Star Wars 
explores these same themes. It's more accessible, but to just be dismissive and say it's a kid's movie as if it's for three-year-olds only, it's like, no, three-year-olds enjoy it on a certain, you know, it's like, I, it, it's just, this is, I think, such an indicator that from the beginning, Lucas was thinking bigger thoughts than a lot of other people uh, yeah. in the industry. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the cave because that's exactly what I was thinking, John, with just that idea of how this whole, you know, he literally comes out of the cave and sees something he's never seen before, a sunset, you know. And Christy, you mentioning this idea of, of like connection and I, I it's something that I really in the world that we're living right now where we've all been social distanced for so long here in 2020 because of this, you know, COVID pandemic, it really brought that to mind of just how important connection is with people. Like mm -hmm. not on a screen, not just watching it on a big wall, you know, not just um, and, and what I thought was so fascinating is how these people have been, you know, completely desensitized to violence and sex because they're completely sedated. So they have barely any urges whatsoever. And so they they have no desire really to kind of connect with one another. And so the humanity has completely been squelched because in the end humans are social beings mm -hmm. we're meant to be social we're meant mm -hmm. to be in community we need one another and by taking away the community and by taking away any type of of urge at, at all the state is able to completely control the population and like you said john in the end they are literally creating their own oppression and they're continuing to be able to perpetrate that. And I thought what was fascinating is we do get the sense that there's like somebody behind the scenes all the way, right? With with the with the guys that are like studying them in the room, you mm -hmm. know, and they're like, oh no, we can move it over here. Or oh, you can have three, you know, like but but still they're just also another part of the system. And so it it just really struck me how this movie, like you said, John, this might be, you know, George Lucas's best work on what it means to be human because the movie strips away everything that it means to be human. And we see these characters who are less than human. And we know that because they're like, they're bland like you said christy vanilla mm -hmm. like everything is just vanilla you know like everything's white there's and the only thing that's black is what's oppressing you mm -hmm. well it, it's it's also you know and and i i don't i'm trying to, to phrase it right because you know medications are very important medications are very absolutely uh, yes necessary but you know, you see a society where it, one of the tools of its oppression is that they've re, they've re, they have kept everything suppressed through over medication, through over reliance on it. Through, in, in some sense, THX's journey reflects how some people have a fear of experiencing life because life is in and of itself dangerous and scary, and uh, you know walking that balance, I mean, eventually you're going to drive somebody mad. I mean, in a sense, there's a really interesting thing where when we read 1984 or we watch THX, there's a sense that we're seeing, oh, this is one person's story. But 
it's sort of interesting if you extrapolate it out, this can't be the only story like this that's happening. Like, I would almost love an anthology series set in this world because THX isn't the only person encountering this. They're, they're, Sen is somebody who, you know, Matt, to your point about being social beings, he's in a position of authority. He's playing by the rules, but he wants to be THX's friend so badly that he has La destroyed so they can try to make it, uh, you know, make it real, make it happen. And it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where if you rob people of all of their ability to interact and express their true feelings, then, you know, it's, it's ultimate dysfunction. I mean, if anything, this is a society in here on the verge of collapse. And I think that would be a really interesting sequel is because I see this as THX is sort of that first drop of water through the crack mm-hmm. in the dam. He's gotten out and now it's something where it will continue to go because it's been proven that it can, that it can happen. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, they're, they're, I, I honestly, I watch THX 1138 now and I wish that Lucas were making these films, films like this. Films that were risky, films that I mean, and the prequels were were risky. Absolutely, uh, he threw caution to the wind and he said, "I'm going to do what I want to do." And I see a lot of aspects in the prequels where he's getting back to this, where he's he's he is recapturing this more abstract manner of thought and expression, and that's I, I love it. Um, but I would love to, uh, you know, just see sort of more of an extrapolation of everything that he's exploring here. Yeah. I uh, completely agree. And I think that one of the things that ends up being the beacon of hope throughout the whole story is when you see the one connection between La and THX, um, it, it's so sweet because they don't make it like perverse. Like it was just urges or something. It's like, two people that have never never felt the touch of someone that loves them of any kind of love mm-hmm. and so they're just kind of like touching each other's head and face and things like that and like understanding what being touched feels like like it's just a very sweet moment mm-hmm. it is it is um and also in terms of feeling um to get to the the point uh earlier about you know, they're, they're medicated and they're sitting there and they're just watching and just consuming. And, you know, in essence, THX is, is a, a Netflix binge watcher. He's just sitting there, watch, mm-hmm. watch, watch, just going through things. And, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't call out the fact that a sincere moment of joy was the day that I figured out, uh, for anybody who's familiar with the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, which came out in 94, um, the first track on that album, Mr. Self-Destruct, uh, starts out with a sound cue from this film. Uh, the uh, When THX is sitting there watching uh, the video of the cop beating a guy, 
That is the sound cue at the beginning of Mr. Self-Destruct, uh, the first track on the Downward Spiral. Mm. So if anybody's listening who's a Nine Inch Nails fan, um, I'm sure you already knew that. And for anybody who's listening who's heard the album and wants to go check it out, you'll enjoy that little connection. I thought, you know, one of the things to me that this movie was really interesting, because uh, especially rewatching it, there were some interesting inspirations I could see that, you know, Lucas is pulling from, like, Fahrenheit 451, when it's, you know, they're watching the video wall. Um, just really made me think of that. You know, obviously, this is a culture where, you know, if you completely destroy, you know, reading, basically, <laughs> um, the concept of imaginative reading or anything like that, um, you have, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, Plato's cave. And, and really, too, I mean, this is a hero's journey. Like it is a, a, there's an awakening, a call to awakening. There's, you know, all those type of things you see in a hero's journey. It is just uh, a completely different type of hero's journey than we, you know, see from Lucas um, later on. And I thought to me that was so fascinating to kind of see all of the things that make Lucas who he is as a filmmaker are here in in place and like he's he's doing the thing that you know he would do in star wars where he would use these inspirations to create something to which you're kind of familiar with but also feel completely different or new and i i loved you know being able to 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 watch the movie and kind of see those things play out through his his mindset and i he's just so good about that with synthesizing i think things and creating something all its own. Yeah, I think you definitely hit on the the big thing about this movie, Matt, which is that it's ultimately, again, like a hero's journey, because the main character, of course, is THX. And it's about him going through something that he's thrown into that he didn't really want, like you said, John, but then also building to a point of, well, I can't go back now what do I do moving forward? And I think really the tipping point is when he finds out that La is gone, then he's ultimately made up his mind. I can't stay here and do the same thing every day anymore. I have to find out if there's more. I have a question for you guys. Um, because, because we're sitting here talking about his journey and his escape and, and those sort and you know, the, the, the triggers that move him forward and everything. If you were, to in your head uh, come up with an idea for a sequel after that sunset everything we've been through in this film what does THX do in the next step what happens next I don't I mean what's interesting is how this movie reminded me of another inspiration which is Planet of the Apes where it it just ends right Mm -hmm. you know it ends with the big revelation and then you're done you know, and so you're just left to yeah. wonder what happened next. And then, of course, they made a thousand other Planet of the Apes movies and subtly or not so subtly answered that question. And they descended into not so goodness until they were rebooted. But um, I I think. I don't know, I, because I you the way you were describing, it, John, where, you know, the sequel w- would be something to which it's it's watching this this um this society disintegrate basically uh, is really interesting. Um, But you know, what does he discover? 
you know, I guess the the main question that would be asked then is what caused everyone to move underground? And that would be the the first mm-hmm. question I would have to answer then thinking about a sequel as to where the movie would go from from there. You know, um, is this just a thing where uh, there was some sort of nuclear holocaust or something or, you know, and, and they had been under there so long that they didn't realize, obviously, that everything is okay now, you know, um, and they this had been started off as a good thing for, you know, trying to make sure that everything was kept in order and the human race would be kept alive and yet it turned into its own perpetual like uh, machine of destruction for what it meant to be human you know, like all those kind of questions I guess I would have to ask myself to to, to, to where I might get for a, a sequel and see like for me it's totally different I feel like I've already assumed in my head that if there were a sequel that the cause of all of them being underground was actually urban development continuing on a crash course to the point of now everyone Mm. is underground because you know i mean basically the trend is that more people move to cities than the cities can withstand and we continue to build interstates and skyscrapers and all of these things what if those became completely enclosed and humans determined or the government determined that we didn't need the outside anymore because all we have everything we need in here so I would say from there, I would want him to find purpose, um, possibly to find another female who had survived and actually get to have the family he would have had. Yeah, see, I, I see a more, um, not benevolent, but a more accidental way, I guess, which which sort of falls in line with you, uh, Christy, where it's, I don't think that there's any sort of um, singular controlling or driving uh, force behind this where they, where they wound up um, that it's just a question of things progressed and eventually got to that point. And it, it's all, it's almost like Wally where everybody's on the ship and they just don't know that there was an earth that they, you know, came yeah. from sort of thing. Um, and so there, I don't think that there's even necessarily a, a central controlling thing. It's not like the matrix where there's a central controlling evil robot brain thing, but there's more of a, everybody in their own silos. This is just the way the world is. And they don't ever challenge going outside their silos because, you know, THX and Sen and law, they live in this stark white, um, crazy world. But then you have the people you never see who can exert, uh, control over him while he's in the prison. And then when Sen shows up uh, at the, uh, you know, the, the, the TV center, if you will, uh, where they broadcast the, the face that people see in the confessional, that, you know, that priest that comes along with them, that, that, that happens across. It seems like there's just a, a bunch of silos where people just live in those silos and they don't, they don't ever think to cross the line and try to understand this is who I am. This is my role and I'm never going to change it. So in a sense, there's, you see that reflected later. I I mean, just in the next film we're going to talk about with um, American graffiti, all of these kids, they have their silos. Where are they supposed to go? What are they supposed to do? And who's willing to break out of it and step across that line and try to be something else, something new that they weren't expected to be. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's the, I like the way you guys put it because that's not even something that I had thought about. Um, but and and one of the things I I think you know, regardless of whether or not you know it's a movie that you love or anything, I think the thing I'm always impressed with when I have watched it is just the cast pulling this off because these are completely foreign roles for anyone to play. You're used to playing over emotion, you know, all of these things. And so you have to become so subtle in your movements and just the, your choice of, you know, what you do with your shoulders and how you hold yourself and, you know, the, the eye movement and all that kind of stuff to be able to pull this off. And I thought, you know, everyone in the movie does such a good job of doing that. Like you were talking about Christy when law and THX first come together and, you know, they're not being controlled by the medication anymore. So they're starting to touch each other for the first time. Like just to even feel what it feels like to have somebody touch your face, you know, yeah. like, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so the way that it all works, um, I, I was really impressed, especially watching the movie again, with just how the cast is able to pull off something that's not easy because you're not really meant to show a ton of emotion most of this movie. Yeah, and and it does it I think that that does um you know, it requires a different skill set uh and is is tough for an actor because you and I think that the cast is great here because uh they they completely succeed in that idea of conveying everything with their eyes and their physicality in terms of you know uh, what they're what they're struggling against and what they're thinking you know it, it's it's not an easy job not at all and i mean at times there's really not much dialogue happening so i think definitely you right. both hit a good point that they're using body language and facial expressions more than anything else in this movie. And that I feel like you can really see that with La when she's in the beginning trying to do her job, but you can tell by her face that she makes that something's upsetting her and that she's really unsure about the situation. And, and she never says a word. And uh, you know, it's, um, and I think that's that's one of the unfortunate things is that uh, the actress's name for Law is uh, Maggie McComey. And I don't think she gets enough credit because, you know, Robert Duvall, that's a name that's stuck in your head. George Lucas mm -hmm. is a name stuck in your head. Donald Pleasance, you know, Donald Pleasance, those sorts of things. And even Sid Haig, legendary Sid Haig has a small role in this. Um, but, you know, Maggie McComey is really the heart of this film and it doesn't work without her. Uh, not by any stretch. And I think she is somebody who is unfairly overlooked uh, in discussions of this film in terms of what she's able to accomplish in portraying a very believable and very, uh, very sympathetic sort of character uh, with, you know, I, I mean, people have made fun of Lucas's direction. Can you imagine how minimal his direction was in this mm -hmm. film where, you know, people are supposed to be emotionless, you know, like it's got to be such a tremendous um, chore for an actor to have to work with that type of direction in this type of environment with what you're trying to achieve. Right. So it'd be like slower and less intense. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Right. I'll see no, myself funny. out. Yeah. That, no, that was awesome. 
No, I think you're right, John. And I think it's really interesting, too, because, you know, the unsung hero of the movie is her because she's the one who uh, discovers this for herself. This idea of this this kind of ultimate control that they have with this medication and being sedated. And she is the one who basically, you know, she weans herself off of it enough to be able to then do the same thing for THX. And without her discovering this, like, she's the hero of the movie. You know, we follow THX, but she's the one who sets everything in motion. And I think that's really a cool thing to see that that her, that La is the one who kind of, you know, uh, makes everything happen. Um, and I, I think the other part of this, John, too, and this is one of the things when we were talking about the director's cut, I think that the production design, the sound design, and the music then really come together in the way that Lucas wanted for the movie in the director's cut. And those are the things that really kind of make this movie. And it's interesting because there's just so many things that like you see play out even through say like Star Wars, you know, where you have the, um, the, the way in which things are edited. So you hear the background noises, like I think of the Death Star, Mm -hmm. um, when you hear the, the, the stormtroopers talking, ah, there, it looks like they're going on sections, uh, 38 through 39, you know, um, like all of those kind of things are, are things that you get here with all the, the talking over and, 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 and the, uh, the Mm -hmm. incredible sound designed by my merch and then you have Lalu Schifrin's score here to really accentuate everything uh, and all of that works but truly the production design itself comes to life when they're able to kind of expand everything in the director's cut and you really get the full vision and that's where I think watching that here it completely shifted my thinking for the movie um, to to really yeah. see it all play out finally. Well, but even even though like sort of like the you know things moving around and about and expanding with uh, the digital effects, I still think um, one of the most amazing things to me, one of the things that I just always sort of have fun trying to wrap my head around and everything is when he's in the prison mm-hmm. and it's that all white everywhere. With no horizon line, no walls, no ceiling, no nothing, and just this constant light, it's fascinating to me because I stare at that image and I say, how did you get that? That's an amazing thing that requires a lot of technical skill to get there. And that is something that they did at the time without the the you know benefit of CG or anything like that. And very much putting along this idea of them in the void – uh, out there in you know in this in this amorphous prison that they can't escape from but what's so interesting about putting them there and what i think is really interesting about the production design at that point with them in this nebulous white space that that it has there's no concept of time or anything in it um there's a uh, like how is it truly worse than the lives that they're leading mm-hmm because they're actually all together. They're, they're a dysfunctional community, but they're a community at least. And they're associating with each other. But they're, you almost get the sense that these people, if they hadn't been uh, you know, crushed by the life outside this void, would have been able to operate fairly well. But it's their experiences outside of this 
what we would consider hellish area that actually makes them unable to exist together, which I think is just a really interesting sort of uh, flip mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned, too, the completely white room, because it's funny, the only time I ever remember seeing that was the Truman Show, aside from this. And it definitely Mm -hmm. makes a person consider what is life like at this point, like, because there's no concept of time or space or if there's anything outside of there. And you're right. I mean, at least they had each other, but man, which one is worse? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. And that, and that's uh, because it's like, it's like your punishment for feeling emotion and being human is to be put somewhere where you can't be. And then when you're not acting like a human, you're put somewhere where you're immersed in these things that would be pleasing to you. The ability to go out and interact with people and do work and and succeed and stuff like that. And it's, it's just a, it's a really interesting sort of how, how are the prisons any different sort mm-hmm. of uh, question. And I did mean to ask you both too, this is separate from talking about the director's cut or anything, but the scene of THX's trial was so interesting as well as confusing to me because it comes across like, they have a jury, but then the only person on the jury that you hear say anything seems like one of the like super dramatic kind of people that judges everyone by their own yardstick and is saying, well, he's perverse because he had sex, so he just has to die. And I like that at least the, you know, his representative is saying, uh, well, you know, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that that's an interesting thing, too, because that's another part of the world building. I think that's there that I think probably frustrated Lucas that he never got back to is you have a defense attorney and you have trials. But how is that? You know, how can you have a defense attorney in trials if, you know, everybody, you know, obviously there's a different set of rules about emotion and feeling for different caste systems. And so there's sort of like that class distinction sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I think the trial is one of the most fascinating parts of the film, honestly, Mm -hmm. because of the fact that you go through this whole thing, you have this definite vision of the world, but then when it gets to the trial, there's this layer that suddenly, um, you know, adds this complexity to it just by its very existence. That's intriguing. And like, that's one of the moments that really, I think, you know, first pulled me in uh, when, when I started warming up to the film. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely a really interesting part of the movie. And like you're both saying it, it kind of it. I would love to see more about all of this because there's so much about it that we don't we don't spend a ton of time. You know, the movie, like you were saying, John. It's like I think. Director's cuts, 88 minutes, you know, because they add a, a few minutes. But yeah, it's just, it's it's a very short, succinct movie in its portrayal of everything. And that scene is just so fascinating because like you said, Christy, there does seem to be almost like one voice who's like taking over every other voice mm-hmm. in the trial. Um, and so I would, I would love there to be more on that. Um, so, yeah, that that was definitely one of the 
I would say that's one of those scenes where it's like you feel like you needed to watch it a few times, you know, so you can kind of like catch what everybody's saying because there's a lot of talking over each other too mm-hmm. in that at that point. Um, but yeah, it's just it was kind of fascinating to go from everything being computerized to there actually being a justice system that involves like a defender and a prosecutor and those kind of things. It's like that this one thing has survived that isn't just completely computed, mm-hmm. which was fascinating to me. So, and why is that? So, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm really interested then to kind of see as we've talked through this whole movie and where everybody's going to land on it. And so, um, John, where, where are you going to land with your rating there for THX 1138? I actually wind up landing with a four star. Uh, I'm sort of a soft four. Um, but considering that years and years ago, my first reaction would have been half star. Uh, it's been a long and interesting trip with this film, but I definitely think that the director's cut is the only version I'll ever watch. And as much as I think there are challenges with it, and I can completely understand why somebody wouldn't like the film, I consider it just, um, I, I guess you could, you know, to you, to coin a phrase, it's bizarrely engaging. It's this thing that is sort of, I, I, I wouldn't, I, like, I would never think that this would be something that would be as engaging for me as it is. But when I watch it now, I'm completely engrossed for the majority of the film. There are a couple of rough spots still, but, um, I find it engrossing and I find that, that the, the use of montage and the use of sound is really, uh, really enjoyable. But, you know, again, saying on the flip side, I can completely understand why somebody would walk out and be like, eh. so I, I, I get both points of view. So I have to admit, I sent Matt a text yesterday and said, I did not like this movie. And that's more rare for me. Usually I, I try to give a movie every chance I can to give me something to take away. And I do feel like this definitely explores all these really existential things like we talked about. But it did feel to me like they leave too much open to interpretation. And I understand that it is about everyone kind of taking something different from it. But felt like to me there needed to be more explanation of like for example who the people are that are talking and um, doing experiments on people like THX and what in the world all of the arbitrary numbers mean that the officers beating him are saying you know I mean <laughs> they're just like maybe a, a 1124 or maybe a 614 or a and I'm like what does this mean you're speaking gibberish Yes, and I get that, but I the the thing that I would interject is one of the one of the sentences that I always fixate on when they're torturing him because I think it's so in, in a sense brilliant. And I'm I'm not at all discounting you. There are a lot of mm-hmm. things here where it's just sound and and imagery and stuff like that, but I always love the line what because I always try to figure out how to finish it where they're they're torturing him and one of the cops says, "Are you now or have you or have you ever been?" And then it just stops there. And it's like, wait, mm-hmm. what? Uh-huh. Have been what? And, it, you know, it's sort of like, I, you know, but n- none of that to say to, to discount. It's just you, you, you mentioning that just sort of like, yeah, you know, 
stretching. No, out, I mean, so. I didn't notice that. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, but yeah, I, I guess just ultimately it, it was hard for me to get through because of those things. And it just felt like it went on for too long for me. So I give it a two and a half out of five. Yeah. It's not bad. Because I think it still has some value, yeah. but I feel like you can also tell that it's kind of a, a first venture for somebody and that it has these things that I wish were explained better. Yeah, I think uh, for me, this is one that has definitely grown on me. And I, this viewing, and I think the, you know, the George Lucas director's cut is something that um, I just really responded to. And, and part of it is all the things we talked about, but part of it is the, the way in which I think the film just finally works, mostly the way that George desired. And I'm with you, John, in the sense that, you know, there are a couple of spots here and there that it, I feel like, you know, kind of could have moved things along a little bit more, you know, I definitely think um, as important as the, uh, the scene in the kind of like white hell is, I do think that's enough. That's a part where uh, maybe there could have been a way to tighten it up just a little bit, you know? So mm -hmm. some moments like that, but otherwise, you know, I think this has definitely become a four, out of five for me and it and i'm with you chrissy this is not a movie that i would just like turn on anytime like I'd, mm -hmm. have, I'd specifically have to watch this movie you know like I'd, I'd have to be choosing you know this is this is not just like um any kind of like mindless entertainment or anything like that uh this is definitely something that is kind of like when i decided i'm gonna i was gonna watch 2001 again uh about three or four months ago and it's like, I'm going to sit down intentionally to watch this movie because of what this movie is, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so this, this is definitely one of those movies, but it definitely grew on me. So, um, but I would be remiss if we got out of here and we did not give everybody some recommendations. <laughs> and so John, what would you like to recommend to the listeners of the 602 Club? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I had actually forgotten about this, but I actually do have something to recommend. Um, it, spurred on by a, uh, a co-worker. Uh, well, you know, we, we're all working remotely, and so we're sharing movies back and forth that we're checking out and stuff like that. And he and I both have a passion for obscure stuff that we can find on Amazon Prime. He pointed me to a 1982 horror film. Uh, which actually has a George Lucas connection called The Sender. And it is a film uh, that bucks the slasher trend that was popular at the time. Um, came out in 1982. It's about a person with telepathic powers who gets checked into a psych ward and uh, hijinks ensue. And uh, it features uh, Paul Freeman, who played Belloc in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it has music by Trevor Jones, who's an incredible composer. And it was directed by Roger Christian, who was set, de set decorator on the original Star Wars and second unit director on The Phantom Menace. And he had some other films as well uh, that he came out with. But there's uh, there's some strong George Lucas connection there. And so uh, The Sender, 1982, it is not high art cinema by any stretch, but it is a, a very enjoyable and interesting uh, suspense horror type of film from 1982. Highly recommend. Oh, cool. Well, 
I mean, I recommend <laughs> checking it out. I, not highly recommend. You're not going to walk out. Movie you're ever. not going to walk out of it being like, no, 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 no. I, I, I highly recommend checking it out just at just for the fact that it's an interesting film. I think it's a film that's actually very ripe for a modern retelling. I think they could do it very, very nice. Well. Mine is uh, a little bit different. I told Matt recently I was going through and watching more documentaries lately because we have access to some really interesting stuff on Hulu. And I actually watched the Joan Jett documentary, Bad Reputation. Mm. And I mean, I was Mm. predisposed to liking it anyway because I admire her so much. And I have the first record that they made, um, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, um, with her on the cover in that pink blazer. And it's just, it's so cool to actually hear the story behind that and that they were not getting any good relationships with um, recording studios. And so she and her manager decided to pool their own money and put that record out themselves and drive around their car with the records in the trunk. It's just, such an interesting thing to me to to see how far she's come and that it's actually no small feat to say that she paved the way for women in music because i mean she went through a lot of ridicule just for being a woman in an industry that was mostly male at the time because the 80s you know i mean it was all hair metal of guys that dressed like women but it was like it was a guy's world. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, well, I'm here and I can play guitar just as good, if not better than you. So I highly recommend nice. watching Bad Reputation, the documentary on Hulu. Cool. So uh, I was inspired. Um, a friend uh, of of ours, uh, Tristan Riddell, had mentioned, John, uh, a few weeks back uh, in our um, Nerd Party chat uh, about the, the Mask of Zorro. And I mentioned how it was a, a family favorite of his. And, and I had not seen that movie in a really long time. Probably it, the movie came out 22 years ago. I probably haven't seen it in 20. Uh, and so I went back and checked out The Mask of Zorro because it was on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is it on Netflix, but it's streaming on Netflix in 4K, which was great. Uh, and, I mean, the movie's got, you know, Antonio Banderas and uh, Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And it was so much fun. Directed by Martin Campbell, who's directed some of the best Bond movies. There's so much life to this movie. It feels like, I mean, it, it owes so much to, like, I think movies like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and stuff like that that came afterwards owe so much to this movie. Um, it just revels in its own fun. It, ha- it I mean, you know, it's never taking itself too seriously, but um, it's just great. I really had so much fun rewatching it and uh if you haven't seen it the while heck it is on netflix for free right now so go enjoy it. it's it's a great movie to watch with the family um but it's just a great movie to just sit down and watch by yourself or, or with some friends or with anyone so go check out the mask of zorro again um and maybe you've never seen it so then the soundtrack by james horner is mm, it's it's the chef's kiss. So just uh, just go check it out. Uh, but, John, if anybody wants to catch up with you and uh, see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? 
You know what? Just uh, follow along on uh, Letterboxd. Uh, my name is Kessel Junkie on there. It's, choose your social network of choice. That's my name there too. Uh, and you can find me um, actually over on the Nerd Party. Uh, there's a, a project coming out uh, summer 2020 uh, that is uh, pretty exciting. That's going to be interesting, uh, I hope, <laughs> that I think is going to be interesting. Um, looking at the works of uh, David Fincher. And speaking of the Nerd Party, I'm over co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, uh, Star Wars podcast with uh, Matthew Rushing over there. Nice. That's a pretty good show. What about you, Christy? <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, I I think you know where to find me, but I am on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok now at Bespin Bell. And uh, I I do come into the Babel Conference from time to time. And then also, aside from the 602 Club, I do a couple other shows. I do Sabres and Spells with my friend Teresa uh, on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And we talk about all kinds of geeky stuff that we're into at the time. So uh, I believe next we're going to cover some more Harry Potter stuff. Um, Maybe talk about Rise of Skywalker finally. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, And then I do a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax Network with five women from around the world talking about Star Wars. And you could find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. Uh, I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones. When we get a chance, we uh, talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network, not only doing aggressive negotiations with the aforementioned John Mills, but you can find me on the Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time each and every week. We are in the Deathly Hallows now, so that's fantastic. And then last but not least, with everything starting to move in the right direction, we're hoping to be back to cinema stories soon. I do that with my friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you hear. Thank you.